Hello and welcome to the 41st edition of the Travelling To podcast. I'm your host, Friedel. Today on the show, we're interviewing Amaya Williams. She's been cycling around the world with her husband, Eric, since 2006. And we'll be telling you a little bit about why life is going to be slowing down and getting more exciting for us over the coming months. yet another edition of the Traveling to Radio Show. I hope that I'd actually be able to do this show from a local park, sit out in the sunshine and enjoy the last of the summer. But as I look out my window here, it seems like winter is definitely on its way. The wind is blowing a gale, it's pouring rain, and all I can really do is sit inside and think about when our next bike ride may be. Well, if you didn't see the announcement on the blog, then perhaps now is a good time to tell you that our next bike ride, or at least our next bicycle tour, might be quite some months away in the future because we've got an exciting announcement, and that is that I'm pregnant. Now, that's probably not what you expect from two adventurous travelers. In fact, I know a lot of people were thinking that we would quit our jobs again and roll off into the sunset for another three years before too long. But actually, we decided that life has a little bit of a different direction for us. And while we still do want to do a lot of bike touring with our new baby, for now, we're going to settle down for a little bit and uh, just stay in one place and enjoy being a family. The baby's due in February, but even though I just said we're going to be settled, we are already planning our first bike tour. We found so much inspiration out there from different families who are on the road for varying lengths of time. And we're pretty sure that, well, there really isn't any reason why we shouldn't be able to do a bike tour towards the end of next summer. We'll probably stick relatively close to home while we get used to things like diaper changes and uh, nighttime feedings in the tent. Then hopefully by the end of 2012, we'll be able to take a long trip to somewhere more exotic. We're thinking maybe Cuba now for the winter, probably for about four weeks, or maybe a trip to Southeast Asia. If you have any ideas where we should go come November, December next year, well, drop us a line. We'd love to hear from you. Our email is us at traveling2.com, or you can use the contact form on the website. Now, of course, our bike touring lives might be slowing down for a few months, but there are still plenty of other people out there on long and interesting bicycle tours. And recently, we had a chance to talk to Amaya Williams. Many of you may be familiar with Amaya already. She runs the website worldbiking.info with her husband, Eric. And together, they've been on the road since 2006. It all started with a bike trip through Africa. And once they got down to South Africa, they just decided to keep going. I'll let Amaya tell the rest of the story. Hi, my name is Amaya Williams, and I've been cycling around the world with my husband, Eric Chamillon. Since 2006, uh, so far we've covered a, almost 100,000 kilometers, and we've been on five continents, and we're not ready to quit. That's a, a huge trip. Tell us how it started. Did you just wake up one morning at home and say, hey, we're going to cycle around the world, or what was the origin of this trip? <laughs> well, actually, I was, a, I was inspired by Alistair Humphreys, as I think many people were, so way back in 2006, 
I'd been following around his I'd been following his blog of his round the world trip. And I thought, wow, that's amazing. If if he can do something like that, uh, I think we probably can too. But we we didn't have such ambitious plans in the beginning. In the beginning, I suggested to my husband that we just cycle through Africa because it was uncommon to us. We'd traveled backpacking in a lot of other areas of the world, but we didn't know anything about Africa. So I suggested we cycle through Africa to Cape Town. And so at that point, you had no idea that you were going to keep going as long as you actually did or... No, no, we just planned to cycle to Cape Town. Actually, it wasn't such an easy thing. My husband wasn't too um, thrilled about the idea of cycling. He thought it would be really dangerous and there would be wars and famine and a lot of challenges. Uh, So it took a little bit of convincing, but finally he agreed that we'd uh, take on the challenge. And we decided to cycle to Cape Town and we made it there in about 18 months, I believe. That doesn't actually sound like such a long time when you consider the distance. Did you feel like you were going very slowly on that first stretch or was that about how long you expected it to take? Or and We planned for about 18 months, but I definitely I would say it was pretty fast, really, when I think back on it. I probably would do it a bit slower now. We've definitely slowed down our pace since the beginning, but we were really gung-ho in the beginning and we did long days and with some pretty tough cycling actually. But I think that is, if you take a really long trip, people tend to cycle a little bit faster in the beginning. So we were probably doing about 100 kilometers on average, which is pretty hard long days considering the um, terrain that you run into in Africa. I I guess I should probably even go back a step because you said that you you had the idea from Alistair Humphreys. Had you done any cycle touring before or or was this the first time that you got on your bicycles? Well, I, I actually grew up in Montana in Missoula and it's home of adventure cycling. So uh, you'd think I had, would have grown up with this cycling culture, but I really didn't. I didn't really do any cycling when I lived in the U.S. And then we moved to Germany. Bicycling is a little bit more popular in Europe. Uh, but I think the longest we'd ever cycled was about a thousand kilometers down to Lake Constance from our home in Germany. So we we didn't have any really major cycling experience. And we were definitely weren't really into cycling. I just liked it because it was a nice way to be outdoors, but we weren't in the, into racing or taking it really very seriously. But I I had become frustrated with traveling, with backpacking, because I just couldn't take those long bus rides anymore. And I found that there was a lot of downtime when you were backpacking and obviously a lot of constraints as well. So I thought bicycle touring would be a lot better way to see the world. And I definitely don't regret taking that decision. And given that you were therefore then relative newbies to, to bike touring, how long did you actually take to plan and to gather all the equipment and find out what you needed before you actually headed off? Can you tell us a little bit about that, that pre-trip process? I would say in general, I'm not a person who's big into planning. So when I get an idea in my head, I kind of just go for it. And I don't like to make things too difficult. So I think I probably just uh, started really thinking seriously about doing that maybe six months before we left. But we didn't do a lot of planning, to tell you the truth. We spent some time um, researching a good bicycle. I thought that would be very important to have a sturdy bicycle going through Africa. And I wanted to get something really simple that we, we would be able, well, Eric would be able to repair. <laughs> so we ended up getting the Kogos, which we've been really happy with that. Kogo Miata is an excellent touring bike for um, tough terrain. But other than that, we didn't spend, really, I don't think I spent any time poring over maps. I never really bothered to look at a map of Africa. I didn't think about taking weather patterns into consideration or rainy seasons or what route to take at all. And I think it was a, it was a different culture back in 2006. There wasn't as much information on the Internet as there is now. So it was more difficult to track down information about bicycle, bicycle touring. Now there's a lot of stuff out there that will tell you 
what you need to take into consideration. But I, I think I was kind of oblivious to that, which is good in a sense, because I think Africa's a little bit tough. And had I known, maybe I wouldn't have taken it on. It's actually amazing to me that you say that you didn't really plan it a route because from my point of view, just you know, reading other people's blogs and so on, Africa seems to be one of the places where you really have to plan a route because there are so many complications with visas and conflicts and other issues that perhaps make it impossible to cycle through somewhere. I mean, did you have to make any big detours or were there any points in that initial 18 months of your trip where you thought, I really should have planned this a bit better or... I don't know if we were we were really lucky, but I would definitely tell someone today that they should plan their route through Africa because you will if you get stuck in Central Africa in the rainy season, you just will get stuck and you won't be able to go through because there's just too much water and the roads will be flooded. But we really got pretty lucky. Things kind of worked out in our favor. I mean, we started in June in Germany and we were in Morocco in August, so that wasn't the best time to be there. There was really extreme heat. But otherwise, we didn't have to make any uh, big detours. We were fairly lucky with our route. But we did a lot of zigzagging just because we wanted to kind of see everything on our way to Cape Town. What do you remember about those early days? Were you nervous, excited? Can you describe that atmosphere the first couple of weeks when you set off? I was just really excited. We, we left from France, actually, from Alsace. And if anyone's been there, it's the flattest place on Earth. So it was really great. You know, we could do whack off 100 kilometers on the first day and it didn't seem especially difficult. And, and what about the, the kind of emotional side of it? Were you thinking at all about what lay ahead or were you really just focusing on a day to day on the day to day aspects of the trip? No, I really wasn't. You know, uh, I know a lot of people think it's going to be a huge challenge. Will I be up to the challenge? But I didn't really have those things in my mind. I was just happy for the freedom and I thought things would work themselves out. It, it wasn't the first time that we had left. It was our third stint that we'd taken off um, a year kind of traveling. So that wasn't a new experience to me in that sense. But I, I think I just wasn't really looking at all of the challenges that would face us. And once we actually crossed over from Europe uh, to Africa, which was, I, I guess, two months we spent cycling through Europe, yeah, then it maybe kind of hit me because I realized, wow, the Sahara is ahead of me. And... Uh, and then reality kind of set in. And what were some of the biggest challenges that you faced in those first first few months? Uh, the, the Sahara, I thought, would be a huge challenge because there are obviously very long distances with um, not a lot of uh, settlements. But that worked out okay, and I was worried about water and things. But I, I think we always really ran into kindness. I think all cyclists say that. You always meet up with uh, someone who will help you out in a difficult situation or... You, you figure out a solution when you have to, you figure it out. But we didn't um, run into a lot of problems really until we maybe got more towards Central Africa. Well, we did get some health problems in, in Guinea, so Eric got malaria pretty early on in the trip. And that was um, a pretty big deal because it's, it's frightening to be in a developing country in the kind of the middle of nowhere and not know what you're going to do. But again, um, he got sick, he was lying down on the side of the road and he said he just couldn't move. And I thought, really, we were in the middle of the nowhere. And someone came by, as people are always cycling everywhere. They seem just to pop out of nowhere in Africa. And some guy asked him, you know, what's wrong? What's wrong? I said, oh, my husband's really sick. And he said, well, there's a hospital just, you know, two kilometers ahead. And I kind of rolled my eyes like, right, there's a hospital here in the middle of nowhere. But <laughs> we took our chances and we kept cycling. Well, he was able to get back on the bicycle. And, yeah, actually, there was a little health center just as he had told us, and um, as soon as we arrived, there was a lot of excitement in the village, and the kids ran off to find 
well, what they called the doctor. Of course, he wasn't a doctor. He was kind of a medical student, I guess. But the guy came and he was able to, to treat Eric. He had the necessary medicine. He gave him an IV and they got us back on the road. So we had a lot of luck, I think. And when you got to the end of that 18 months, what made you think, hey, we're going to keep going? How did that decision come about? Because you went from a, an 18-month trip to what is now a, an infinite trip without any sort of end date. Well, we, we got to Cape Town, and um, even though we had some hard times, I won't say I never wanted to give up. I mean, there were lots of times, especially in, in Gabon and Congo and places like that, where I really thought, why am I doing this? But finally, I guess when we got to, to Cape Town, there was kind of an adrenaline surge, and we'd gotten pretty used to that lifestyle. And we said, oh, well, why not? Let's cycle back then to Europe. Because we also realized that we'd missed a big part of Africa, Kenya and a lot of Tanzania and Ethiopia, countries like that. And we wanted to keep going. So we decided we would just turn around and um, head north back to Europe. And then we cycled north um, through East Africa and then back through the Middle East. And that completed our circumnavigation. And and then you said to yourself, hey, let's go for another couple of years? Or, or at what point did this transform into a, an endless trip? No, it was, again, I guess we're just not the kind of people who sit down and say, shall we do this? It just kind of evolved and oh, we kind of like this. And, and for us, um, we've got a couple of apartments that we rent out. So we've got kind of a steady stream of income. Mm-hmm. So as long as we're not uh, spending too much, if we live really frugally, we don't really have to cut into our um, – it doesn't hurt our budget too much. So we thought if we could live frugally, we could just keep going actually. So when we got back to Europe, I said, oh, well, I really should go and visit my family now in, Mon- in, in the United States. So we decided to fly to New York, and I visited my sister on the East Coast, and then we cycled across the U.S. to Montana, stopped in to say hi to my parents, uh, cycled out to the coast, took a left, and then we headed down to South America. And, and what was South America like for you? I was just looking at your blog just before we started Skyping, and you have some phenomenal pictures from the mountains, particularly in South America. The scenery looks just incredible. Well, you know, you always have ups and downs, and I think there was a time, especially in Central America and maybe in Mexico as well, where I became a little bit bored with bicycle touring, shall we say. And it had become monotonous, and I wasn't really sure if I wanted to go on. I, I didn't feel like getting up in the morning to go cycling. And, and to me, that, that just seems there's no point in it. If you don't feel enthusiastic about it, there's no reason to keep on going. So I, I definitely went through those times when I did want to get up. up. But uh, somehow I pushed on, and then, as you say, we got to the really great stuff. And once you get into southern South America, in the southern cone, when you're into the Andes in Chile and Argentina and Bolivia – uh, it just, it's mind-blowing. It's, I think, the most beautiful scenery landscape, uh, apart from Montana, that I've ever um, seen. Can you describe a typical day on the bicycle in that part of the world? Just take us there, paint a picture for us. Um, well, it depends. We like to go on some kind of remote passes. So there's usually a choice. You could take a major road or you could go over the back roads over the Andes. And that requires a lot of planning. You could be going for several days, you know, six, seven, maybe eight days, where you won't be finding any shops or anything. So before you take on one of these remote passes, um, you've got to do a lot of um, planning, get the right amount of food and um Make sure you won't run out of supplies, because if you're hungry in the Andes, there's just no way you can keep going. But a typical day like that, we would get up, um, even though it was really cold, we would get up pretty early, because we never know what lay ahead. And one of the toughest part of, of being in the Andes at high altitudes can be the winds. 
So if you've got a long distance to cover, um, you want to make sure that you've got plenty of time to get that down. So we would wake up early, and cycling uh, in the morning is always really wonderful in the Andes. The light is really soft, and you see the sunrise over the peaks, and you, um, you start to warm up. First, you're really cold, so you've got all of your clothes on. Plus, I would wear double gloves and hats and, and mittens and all bundled up. And then slowly, the, the sun will heat you up, and maybe around... Oh, 10 or 11 o'clock, you could start taking off layers. And as you've got some long, long climbs, you might um, get up to the top and then take a, a beautiful vista and then just kind of fly down the hill. And then and before you know it, you'd be climbing again. So it's just up and down and up and down. And roads can be really rough. You can have a lot of sand, actually. You can have huge rocks. Um, there's just all kinds of challenges in the Andes, but it's spectacular scenery. It's just amazing and so remote, really remote. You could go, you know, maybe in one day you might see just a couple of vehicles. So there's a peacefulness there in the Andes. I love. And you mentioned needing to plan in terms of making sure that you have enough water and enough food. Um, for people who haven't done a, a sort of expedition, they don't, a lot of people really don't know how exactly you do that. So can you explain to us, when you're looking at a map and you're thinking, well, I'm going to go from A to B, how do you decide, yes, I'll be able to get food there or I need to carry this much water to get through this section of the trip? What's that process like for you? Yeah, well, I think that's the beauty of the Internet and um, the bicycle touring community that you know, there actually there are remote places, but most places now, some some crazy cyclist has gone there, and a lot of people are really kind, and they put a lot of information on the internet. So you've got to know the right blogs. We used a lot the Pikes on Bikes blog, Harriet and Neil Pike, and um, they're really crazy cyclists, and they'll take on anything, and they're really kind enough to put all of the distances down and to describe every place where you can get water, where you might get supplies where there's a military checkpoint and the people can help you out, things like that. So your first um, step when you're planning a trip like that should be to check on the Internet to see if other people have traveled there and what information is available. Um, if not, you can always check with local people, but sometimes you really won't get very good information because people tend not to take those back roads because they prefer the easier route. But I'm something on the Internet... Um, and, and you'll know where you should get your supplies. And then you've just got to stock up. You know, we take things like rice, pasta, instant soups, instant mashed potatoes, a lot of oats, uh, milk powder, all those kind of things. And what's the longest distance you've ever done between uh, between places where you could stock up? Uh, I don't know. Probably was around Paso Seco in, um, in Argentina. I think it was almost a week we went really without finding any kind of supplies or, or something. And I don't know in distance. It probably wasn't that far. But in the Andes, when you're doing, when you're going over several high passes and you're up at 5,000, 5,500 meters, you can be sure you're not uh, putting in 100 kilometers. I think some days we were doing maybe 30 kilometers, like 30 kilometers, and it was killing us. From before that, I would see, oh, look, it was only 30 kilometers. That should be an easy day, but no way. Hmm. That kind of altitude and, and going over passes all the time, you really can't do much. And also, you've got the wind to contend with. So your distances are very short, actually. And you've got bad road conditions as well. And you struggled a bit with altitude sickness. Can you tell us yeah, about that? I really, I really got taken down twice with altitude sickness. And it's something you really shouldn't mess around with. Um the first time I got it, I'm really thankful that I wasn't cycling alone because I would say I became even a little bit kind of delirious 
and I really, um, I couldn't, I was, I had made it up to the path and I was going down over the path and I could just no longer kind of cycle straight or even keep my balance. I was slurring my words and I just wanted to lie down by the side of the road. I just couldn't keep going. And Eric, he just forced me to get on the bicycle. He was really just shoving me. You can't lie here. You know, you're going to die out here at night if you just lie on the ground. Yeah, I had lost my uh, kind of senses, I guess. And the second time as well, we just went up too fast. So people, it just depends your sensibility. Obviously, I'm sensible, so sensitive. <laughs> I'm not very sensible, but I'm sensitive to altitude sickness. So I know that. And you take it a bit slower now going up mountains, do you? Or... Well, I haven't been up any mountains since then because our uh, Eric's bicycle got stolen in Bolivia. But the next time we uh, take on any mountains, I'll definitely take it slower. Well, and that's a nice introduction to the other problem I was going to ask you about. Tell us about your bike getting stolen. It must be every bike tourist's worst nightmare. So what happened? Yeah, it is. <laughs> but I just want to say, I think um, bicycle theft is, is pretty uncommon. Um, yeah, we don't have any really uh, great story to tell. It was a bit of foolishness on our part. I think we'd, we'd been on the road five years, and we never really had anything stolen. Maybe small things, but nothing really serious. And we'd become maybe kind of complacent or not uh, being as vigilant as we should have. And we were in a hotel in Cochabamba, and we were, as all, many cyclists do, you want to keep your bicycle and your belongings inside your room. Our bicycle was up on the first floor. Um, we parked the bicycle in the lobby of the hotel, which was kind of a courtyard, and we were taking the things up. Normally, we're taking one at a time. We happened to both be upstairs. One bicycle was downstairs alone, and when we went downstairs, um, Eric went down. I heard him screaming. I said, oh, that's it, they've taken the bicycle. And yeah, in a matter of minutes, maybe, someone had entered the hotel lobby, the courtyard, and had ridden off with the bicycle and everything on it. So just a bit of bad luck. It seems quite unlikely, doesn't it? Because I know when, when we do a lot of bike touring, we often think of a hotel courtyard, that something inside the hotel is one of the safest places that that a bike could be, because in theory you have a receptionist or, or hotel staff who are sort of looking out for you. What the police said is there's um, at Cochabamba, but Bolivia in general is a place where you really want to pay attention. The police said in, in Cochabamba, a lot of people, a lot of gangs of thieves will just follow a foreigner around town and just wait at a distance until that person kind of slips up. Maybe they go down a road where there's uh, not many other people. Maybe they're out until it's starting to get dark or maybe they leave their bicycle unattended in a hotel lobby and then they just um, they pounce really. So I, it wasn't just some casual passerby. I think they'd probably been following us because we'd gone around to several hotels in that town looking for the right one. They'd probably been following us for quite some time. So we just slipped up and, and yeah, but we're not going to let that stop us. But what, what do you do when you're stuck in Bolivia without your bicycle and, and all the bags that were on the bicycle? How did you recover from that? How did you even start to think about, okay, what next? And Well, I just stayed in a dark room for a couple of hours and tried to look. <laughs> Again. So it wasn't easy. It's just kind of that feeling in your pit of your stomach. I can't really describe it. It's like, I can't believe this happened. No, this could not have happened. So it took a while just to, to, to accept it. But after I accepted it, um, we tried to see if it would be possible. Obviously, I did, really didn't want to leave from Bolivia because we had been in the most spectacular scenery. So I was just telling you about the Andes. And that was what was awaiting us, especially in Peru. If you talk to many uh, cycle tourists, they'll tell you that Peru is really one of their favorite countries for bicycle touring. 
And we wanted to do our circumnavigation of South America. We'd, we'd been there for a year and a half or something. And it was we were not that far from Colombia. Going back to Colombia, we would have completed the circumnavigation. So it's really kind of very hard to let go of those dreams when you're so close. But we decided to be a bit too tough to get the things replaced. We could have gotten a locally made mountain bike and we could have gotten some, some bags, I suppose, and maybe some quality gear. But it's pretty tough to get... Um, to replace all of your equipment in in a third world country because you've got to have things if you want to get your Ortley bags or whatever, you've obviously got to have them sent into the country, and that can get really tricky with customs and just the cost adds up really quickly for shipping. So we decided in the end that it would be cheaper and easier and more comfortable if we just flew back to the states. And I was also happy because I said, you know, I, it's been almost two years since I've seen my family and. And that's just what fate wanted. So we kind of let that happen and, and we arranged flights back to the U.S. And then to actually get your bicycle to the U.S., that wasn't incredibly easy either, was it? I seem, seem to recall you had a few challenges getting your getting a new Kogo from the Netherlands to uh, America. Yeah, well, we should say that Eric is, is a huge Kogo fan and he doesn't want any other touring bikes. So he really insisted that he wanted his Koga because he felt it was really sturdy. And... Um, yeah, I would thought it would be really easy to get a Koga in the States, but actually it's it's a little bit more tricky than we thought. And the Koga's actually not arrived yet. so Oh, still not? No. Because so we're talking quite a few weeks now since you've ordered yeah, it. Yeah, I, th- I thought it had been shipped, and I guess not. There was a kind of a – it's going to be sent over in a container. So I, I think there's just been a little delay with paperwork. But we're pretty, pretty certain it will be here soon. But it, it does take some time. So in the end, I'm glad that we, we came to the States and, and are organizing that from here. It's a lot. Everything's a lot easier in a developed country than it is in the third world. Well, our plan now, and I'm really excited about that, actually is to cycle up to Alaska. So we decided to take advantage because obviously there's just a short window every year where it's ideal cycling time up to Alaska. So we'll be taking off um, early to mid-July and, and going up to the Arctic Circle. And then we'll head off to Asia. Wonderful. Whereabouts in Asia? Japan, Southeast Asia? Yeah, we're not really sure. I, I think we might fly to either Japan or to Hong Kong. Uh, the only thing is it will be getting a, getting a bit cold in Japan. And as everybody knows, it's not maybe the best time to visit Japan under the, the circumstances. But uh, yeah, we'll see. And then Southeast Asia, I think we're going down to Australia and New Zealand. And we want to hit all of the countries. And then cycle back towards um, Europe. But that'll again, that'll take a long time because we really want to hit all of the countries in Asia. Yeah, you have a goal, don't you, to become the first couple to cycle every country in the world? or? Yeah, okay, every country, but I decided maybe not the island states. Those are pretty tough to hit. Every contiguous uh, continental country. Yeah, that's our goal. We've kind of set it for ourselves. So I think we're going to devote, uh, devote this part of our lives to bicycle touring as long as the bodies hold out. But we'd really like to do that. And, and we re- I like to go just to kind of obscure countries, out-of-the-way countries where not many people have been because you get a different kind of welcome and it's really fun to discover new places which haven't been um, overrun with tourists. What's the country that's most impressed you so far? I love cycling in the desert. So one country in Africa that made a huge impression on me is Namibia and the huge uh, dunes there. There's a lot of heat. There are challenges in the desert, obviously. There can be a lot of winds. If they're coming the wrong direction, it can make life miserable. But I would definitely always search out a desert um, if I can now. I would I would make a detour to go in the desert. So 
some of my best cycling. So Namibia definitely makes the hit. Um, yeah, for I guess for hospitality, and there's nothing like the Middle East. There are a lot of problems now in Syria, but when we were there, it was very calm, very peaceful, and we met wonderful people. So I love that country. Every evening, uh, we were just kind of, it was cold. We were coming back from Africa. We weren't prepared, obviously, for cold temperatures where we're used to extreme heat. And we were in Syria in, must have been February or something. It was still pretty cold. There was snow on the ground in some places. And what we would do, we would just kind of, uh, when it would be starting to get dark, we would just roll into a village and kind of just stand around looking really pitiful and, and wait until some locals would come over and, and ask us if we needed a place to sleep. And, and you had to wait only a few minutes and always somebody would come over and invite us into their home at night. And we were just thrilled because we didn't want to camp because uh, of the of the weather conditions. And they would have a, a warm home. We would gather around the fire and, and share a meal together. And those were really beautiful experiences. So definitely want to spend more time cycling through the Middle East. What about a country with the best food? For me, that's always very important, the best food. So where did you eat the best? Yeah, well, I think the best eating is definitely coming up, and that's in Asia. So uh, Africa, nothing nothing too spectacular. I guess in Africa, the best food maybe is found in, in Ethiopia. And especially, I, I don't eat meat, but in Ethiopia, they have a vegetarian days twice a week. I think Wednesday and Fridays, they eat vegetarian and you can get a pretty hearty meal. You get full there for breakfast, which is kind of a bean-based dish. And what I love about Ethiopia, it's a lot of people complain about Ethiopia because there are a lot of uh, stone-throwing children in the countryside, which makes cycling difficult. But um, wonderful coffee. I was surprised. Even in very small villages where people are just living in little huts and you think there's nothing around, there would be some little hut uh, that had a nice Italian espresso machine. So we got great coffee. Yeah, I was. I would have my uh, latte and macchiato, uh, and that was a wonderful thing in wow, Ethiopia. Wow, in Ethiopia, I never would have thought. I know they grow coffee, but I assumed any coffee they would have would be quite basic. And no, they have wonderful, beautiful, beautiful, beautiful coffee, in the, and that's a real because that is a huge challenge. Also, if anyone who's been through Ethiopia, when you've got um, a gang of, of children running after you. Some throwing stones, but chanting at you, 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 you. It, it becomes very mentally challenging. And, and I was quite happy to leave Ethiopia. It's a beautiful country. But once I uh, rolled over the border into Sudan, I was just kind of let out a sigh of relief. And people are so warm and friendly in Sudan. And it's a much different atmosphere than what you, you go through in Ethiopia. Hmm. How has this bike journey changed you? Have you noticed a change in your, your attitudes towards life over the five years that you've been on the road? Or I suppose in a lot of ways I'm, I'm just more thankful. I think anyone who grows up in the West, we, we, just, we have so many opportunities. We have so many more chances than people do who are growing up, who live in the third world. So I'm really thankful for that and really, and really grateful for, for my country. I know... The U.S. has its um, its problems, but uh, I'm thrilled to come to a country where I have opportunities and I was able to get educated. So I think that's one thing that's that's changed definitely. I've I've just realized how lucky I am in life in a lot of ways. Um, so that's one thing I would say. I, I just maybe I take things a little bit more easier. I'm still pretty uptight, you know. If it's getting to be around um, sunset. And there's no place to sleep on the horizon. There might not be any food, no water. You know, I, I'm not the kind of person just to say, oh, well, you know, <laughs> I still get a little bit excited about things like that. But I, I just take things in stride more now, I would say, because I've, I, I've seen 
year after year that things always work out in the end. I, I, I find it's amazing, but things really do, even when I was totally hopeless. One time we were in Namibia, so I thought, ah, there's nothing out here, there's nothing out here. You know, where would we get water? We were so foolish, we didn't stock up. But just suddenly when you're in desperation, water somehow appears on the horizon or somebody comes out of nowhere, nowhere and offers you something. So that's one thing, I think, to kind of remain positive. That's changed for me. But it doesn't completely change you. You know, I'm the same person. I'm, I'm back in Montana, and, and I don't feel any real culture shock. This is where I come from, and and that doesn't change. There's a certain core part of you that doesn't change, no matter how much time you spend on the road, I think. So you don't feel alienated at all in some way because you've spent so no, long I doing don't. something no. totally different than uh, than most people have? Because I know that is a problem for tours who do like a longer trip. Sometimes I think, oh, how do I fit back in? Or I don't really feel that. Um, I, we stayed with a couple, a French couple, also in Panama, and, and we met them. We actually we were always looking for free places to stay, and we'd contacted the the embassy, and they hooked us up with this family. And and the woman said to me, she goes, oh, I'm really surprised. You know, you've been traveling. I thought I would. You would be kind of marginal people. That was the word she used, <laughs> marginal people. <laughs> You're really quite normal. <laughs> and I was like, oh, thank you. And, and, I, and I'm really, um, I think that's because we keep in touch. I'm a huge podcast fan, and I listen to podcasts constantly when I'm cycling. So that really keeps me in touch with what's going on in the rest of the world. And I wasn't doing that in Africa. And I think after Africa, I did feel a little bit of this kind of alienation. And I didn't like it. I, I didn't like not feeling in touch with what was going on with the world or not feeling comfortable with other people. And podcasts really keep me in, in touch with society. Hmm. And, and internet also, I have to say, that's changed a lot. I, if there weren't the internet and I couldn't travel for such a long time. Hmm. Do you think you'll ever be able to settle down again? Will you ever settle down again? Or yeah, in the beginning, I used to think a lot, or not a lot, but I used to think about my life, and I used to miss it. Sometimes I still do, but I don't think so. It's kind of gotten in my in my bones now, and I really like traveling. I think the biggest challenge is having kind of some kind of intellectual um, activity to go along with pedaling, because just pedaling in itself, even if you're taking pictures and meeting new people and seeing beautiful places and learning about different societies, um, you need another activity. So if you can do writing or blogging, I think that helps. Is that desire to sort of keep connected and keep active, is that why you've been developing your world biking site so much? Because you've put some really fabulous resources and articles up there over the last few months for bike touring. Yeah, I, I just think it's it's fun. I, I'm passionate about bicycle touring, and it has changed my life. And I, I just like other people to realize that you don't have to be a super athlete or super adventurous or very courageous to go out and do these adventurous things because I'm I'm really not a very courageous person. I'm not the fittest person on the planet and and I'm able to do these things and I think if you if you have the chance or the inclination that others should should also um, go out in an adventure. It's it's good for everybody. It it changed their minds and I'd like to encourage other people to do it. So I guess that's why I like to work on the website when I have time. And uh, what would be your one piece of advice to, to people thinking that they might do a long trip other than just do it? Because that's what most people say. But give us some other practical piece of advice for someone who's planning a big expedition. All right. Well, if you're going to Africa, then I, I suggest you plan a little bit more than we did. Actually, we 
we were on the ferry coming over from Europe and we said, oh, gosh, we forgot to get a map. <laughs> so that was not the best planning. But that's a, just another case. We were on the ferry. We didn't have a map and, and somebody happened to have two and they gave us a spare. So you might not have as much luck as we do in all situations. So you probably want to plan a little bit more than we did. Um, I would say just to get in contact with people, especially over the Internet. And there are so many wonderful people out there. It's because I think it's frustrating. If you haven't been on a bicycle tour, you can read a lot about these things. And it probably still could sound a bit complicated. So go ahead and, and fire off a few emails. I think people are more than willing to answer questions. So don't be shy about that. I would say, you know what I think is maybe not to go to the places which are the most popular. Because there are places like, especially in South America, there's the Carretera Austral. It's a very, very popular place for bicycle touring. But there are other places in South America which are just as beautiful. So maybe um, you could just try to, to find your own unique place to go to, which is, is less popular and you, you might have um, just as good of experience. So try different places which are off even the cyclist's beaten track. Uh, what other advice can I give people? Um, I guess a sponsorship maybe. A lot of people, that seems to be a big issue on the Internet. People are always curious about how to get sponsorship. And I, some people say, oh, it's not really worth the time and the effort. Um, maybe you should try. Yeah, if, if you're a little bit low on funds, there's no use giving a try to get some sponsorship. So I would encourage people to put together a nice website and some good kind of um, pamphlets or things like that and to go out and contact some country, uh, countries, companies and see if they might get a little help if, if they're so inclined. It takes a lot of work and a lot of persistence. But there are a lot of companies out there who really want to help cyclists and and they'll believe in your ideas and we're really thankful sponsors have helped us a lot and give us your website address so that people can go and take a look around your website yeah the website is uh, worldbiking.info amaya thank you very much for talking to us today yeah thanks riddle it was uh, great chatting with you about bicycle touring since we recorded that interview a few months ago, Amaya and Eric have cycled all the way up to Alaska and then back down to Vancouver, and they're getting ready to board a plane to Asia any day now. We wish them all the best for the next leg of their trip, and do have a look at their website, worldbiking.info. Well, that's it for this podcast. We wish you happy cycling wherever you are in the world. And don't forget, if you want to get in touch, you can always drop us a line. Our email is us at traveling2.com. 